welcome to Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. Hey everyone, I'm your host, Ravi Straczynski, and thank you so much for joining us on episode number four of Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town. On today's show, we have the pleasure of speaking with the one and only Phil Helmuth, a poker hall of famer. Phil has on a record 15 World Series of Poker bracelets and also holds the records for most WSOP caches and final tables. He's the author of multiple books, among them a New York Times bestseller, Play Poker Like the Pros, his engaging autobiography, Poker Brett, and his latest, Hashtag Positivity. While many are in awe of his career tournament poker winnings totaling over $23 million, what I respect far more is that he's helped to raise more than double that amount of charity uh, of money for charity. Phil, it's a pleasure to speak with you again, and welcome to Cards Chat. Thanks, Robbie. Pleasure to be in Cards Chat. I think we're closing in on, I may have passed $60 million raised for charity. It's getting up there. Unbelievable. I, that's just that's just wonderful. That's something that you just put as a, as a person's legacy. Fantastic stuff. And uh, we will be mentioning charity uh, later on. Uh, but got a bunch of questions for you. Um, and we'll just, I guess, start off with, with one question that I think takes things back to the beginning of your poker career. Do you remember the first time you played poker in a casino, uh, where and when it was? Um, did you win or lose? And what was that experience like for you? I do remember the first time I played in a casino. It was, um, I mean, man, I hope I get this right. Let me just think about this. Well, I think the first time I played, I played with a very famous actor named Telly Savalas. Oh, wow. Um, I believe that was the first time I ever played poker. But I went to the Dunes hotel and casino which is now gone and there's a, a small casino there now called the bellagio not so small <laughs> and uh and i remember you know i remember i was 21 and a half and uh i'd been kind of a, a professional poker player although i didn't know what i'd been a college student and i had about eighteen thousand dollars to my name which was amazing you know we're talking about you know, 1985. And, mm -hmm. and I was like, this is amazing. That's all the money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> and, uh, and I remember saying, all right, it's time to take the next step. I'd crushed the games in Wisconsin for a year, year and a half, two years by then. And so it was time to hit the big time. And, and the first place I landed was the dunes. Now I hadn't done any research. I didn't know where to go. I just booked a room there. I do know this. Um, I did not need that room for the first night. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'd used it for the first two nights. So I, I paid for the room for three nights. I believe I sat down in a game on New Year's Eve and uh, Telly Savalas was on my left. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's one of the biggest actors in the world. He was the star of a television show called Kojak. Sure. And and uh, and so, you know, but they were playing a game that I really hadn't played before. It was seven card stud eight or better. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't particularly good at that game. And uh, I remember playing, I believe it was close to 40 hours straight. Wow. And I went to, when I finally went to bed, um, I, I remember I had to be up uh, in five hours to go to stay at my friend's house. My friend, my friend was Thule Haromi, but that's a whole nother story. Uh -huh. And, uh, but I do, do remember this, that, 
um, they knocked, they, they couldn't wake me up. And they, <laughs> they figured out what was room I was in and security was knocking on my room and finally security <laughs> opened my door. And I mean, I think after being up 40 hours and sleeping three, four, five hours, I was just, and I'm a guy that, you know, always needs nine hours of sleep. So sure. they couldn't even, <laughs> I mean, they had to come into my room to wake me up. So yeah, that was my first experience in Vegas. Not the best start, um, but pretty glamorous and that it was New Year's Eve and Telly Savalas had a tuxedo on. So if we just stop there and say, wow, do you remember the first time you went to a casino? And I say, yeah, New Year's Eve, Telly Savalas, he was in a tuxedo. Wow, <laughs> it was so cool to play with a superstar. It'd be a great story if I didn't include the fact that I stayed up two days straight <laughs> and got roused that, by security. I think that makes the story that much more legendary. <laughs> what, what you, and that's just the start. And we've got like at least, you know, about another hour to go, guys. So thanks so much for tuning in for this, uh, what I'm sure is going to be continuing to be a fantastic interview. Um, Phil, I know, you know, you're, you're right now, you're in Mexico, you're in, in Cabo San Lucas. Uh, you're playing for bracelets in the 2020 World Series of Poker Online Summer Series. So as the all-time leader, you've got 15 bracelets. I've got to ask you, would winning a WSOP online bracelet mean as much to you as the bracelets that you've won live? Absolutely. I mean, it would it would tell people that I can do it anywhere and everywhere. Right. And so that's that's more important. That's why that's why all the seconds and thirds that I have in bracelet events that aren't Hold'em hurt because it doesn't tell the world, hey, uh, Phil's good at these games and used to be a knock on me. I'd only won Hold'em bracelets. Well, now I've won two Raz bracelets and I've won limit Hold'em bracelets, no limit Hold'em bracelets, pot limit Hold'em bracelets. And, uh, you know, um, for anybody following closely would know at the World Series of Poker Europe this year, I had a third in the eight game mix and a second in the eight game mix, um, a second and a third at the WSOP Europe. It would have been sweet to win those, but very much like winning non hold bracelets, winning online would be sweet. And I've been close, you know, uh, Robbie, I'll say that it was last year at the World Series of Poker 2019 where it was early in the series and I decided to play this online tournament and, uh, you know, I wasn't really paying attention, just thought, Hey, you know, it'd be nice to cash. Um, yep. haven't played much online poker in, in a long time, uh, you know, compared to the last five months where I played almost every day, uh, I just hadn't really played much in years. And all of a sudden, um, you know, I remember as I was playing, I, I, in the middle of the tournament, I went to play in a real-world tournament at the same time because that's the way it is the series. Luckily for me, I busted quickly in that one. <laughs> and I still had some ships left, and I think driving in the limo on the way over because I couldn't drive my car from the Aria, um, you know, I it just wasn't as sharp. You know, I was I'd been playing on my computer, and I was on my phone, and on the way back, and I just remember right before I hit the elevator at the Aria, you know, thinking. They were real close to the money, and I just needed to focus more. And, you know, and between hands, hopped on the elevator, got upstairs, got to my big suite, you know, the big wraparound suite at the Aria, sat down, re-logged in on the computer, and it just seemed to feel a lot better when I had a bigger screen in front of me. And the next thing you know, I made the money, and I was like, hey, this is cool. And then all of a sudden, with 100 players left, I was chip leader. 
So I tweeted out, hey, I'm chip leader in this tournament. I think it was 3,700 players or something. I'm chip leader in this tournament. And then all of a sudden, the poker media just woke up because it was like midnight, I think, or something. And the poker media woke up, and all of a sudden, there were people doing live broadcasts of me. And we hit the 18. When we hit the final 18 players, I was chip leader again. And I think I was chip leader with 10 left. And so by then, the, the poker media was in a full frenzy. There were just tweets going out all over the world. And, uh, you know, it's during the World Series of Poker, and I was just thinking, this is sweet. I told my wife I'd have to wake her up at 2.45 in the morning because she has to be at all my final tables. And I remember waking oh my her goodness. up. And, uh, you know, she's a trooper. And, uh, and unfortunately <laughs> for me, I think I finished fifth. And so I was just oh, like, wow. oh, my God. It was like. You know, but I was real close. And so I thought, wow, why can't I win a World Series of Poker online tournament? I don't know if I'd played more than a, you know, more than a handful in the previous four or five years. So, you know, and then uh, so then this year, um, July 1st, um, I went to Vegas and uh, half the world wasn't paying attention to the fact that there was a World Series of Poker online. And uh, but now I knew it could win. And. I remember <laughs> flying in. I took a commercial flight. Because I took a commercial flight, I arrived and I took a shower and I wasn't going to play till I ordered food. And I sat down at 5.30. Deadline was 7. Well, I made the money and that was cool. But my set, you know, my sights were a lot higher than that. And, you know, and all of a sudden, but a lot of the media was paying attention. And the next thing you know, we got to the final 18 and I was chip leader. And it seems like the media went wow. into a frenzy again, the poker media. Unbelievable. I had 3.8 million with 18 players left. And, you know, unfortunately for me, um, I lost with uh, queens against kings for about a million. And then for about 700,000, I had ace queen suited against ace king. I, I couldn't avoid that one. And the final 2.2 million I stuffed in with queens after an under the gun raiser with 11 left. And he studied forever. He made a 200K, I made a 2.2 million, and decided to call me with Ace King. And I lost that flip and finished 11th. So just like that, that would never happen in the real world. If, you're, if I'm chip leader with 18 left, you know, I'm, I'm making that final table with chips. And I, I wondered later, hey, did I have to put in the whole 2.2 million with Queens? Maybe I could have like just kind of sat back and not played a lot of hands till we got to the final table. You know, and that one hurt. But you know, right. Robbie, I thought to myself, I, this is great. It's the first tournament out of the box. I had the whole poker world watching. And for all those people that hadn't played in tournaments or weren't planning on coming, I think it changed a lot of people's minds and said, you know what? If Phil can finish 11th, uh, I think I'm going to go play too. And so it brought a lot of spotlight to poker. And I think it helped with the numbers at the World Series of Poker. You had to be in Nevada or you'd be in New Jersey uh -huh. to play. And I think, I think it helped. And, and I thought to myself, don't worry, I'm going to have a great month. <laughs> unfortunately for fantastic. me. Fantastic. Unfortunately for me. So that's, let's just stop the story there. Uh, except to say that, you know, my best finish after that seemed to be about 35th place. So frustrating. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just come in, you know, I'd finished fifth the year before and then I'd only played one. And this was like, so in three three World Series of Poker tournaments in like eight years, uh, or you know, in uh, the last three I'd played in, it was fifth and eleventh, and so I said, "Man, I'm going to tear this thing apart." And unfortunately, 
uh, you know, the next 30 days, I didn't do much. Right. Well, it's interesting you had said, I'd never heard anyone, you know, you used the word, luckily I busted from the in-person tournament. No one's ever said that, but that's a fascinating mindset to think about because obviously it led towards your deep run uh, on the online uh, tournament. Uh, you know, online versus live, is, the, is there anything that you miss about the regular WSOP summer grind that we obviously haven't had this year? I mean, you know, what? If, if I had... The nice thing about playing in the real world is the blinds are slower. Now, turns out I've won a lot mm. of tournaments that were just one day or two day. So, you know, it's not, I mean, and, you know, there's a mindset that comes along with these tournaments and the way you play. But when you're in the real world, I think that I feel like a cat that has nine lives every day. And so <laughs> I, I, I end up doing nine things every single day that no other player would do. And now... You know, and now there's some some players that get it out there that are doing some of the things that I do now. Uh, Daniel's figured some stuff out. Um, some of the really, really, really smart kids have figured some things out. And so, you know, I, but there's a bunch of stuff that I do that nobody else does. I mean, I and so I'm giving myself more chances uh, to get there, you know, by not going broke with two jacks when I have, you know, 18 big blinds. Because I can just see the guy has queens or kings, or I feel he has exactly aces. And then somehow I get away, and everybody else on the planet would have shoved there. So I give myself nine, nine more lives. And so, you know, and, and in the online, that's harder to do, right? So, you know, I, you know, I do think that there's a huge, like Mike Matisau does these, like he, he streams himself. Mm-hmm. And and he streams himself and and he gets just and the amateurs and the really bad players they don't understand why he folds ace ten suited under the gun every time he has twenty big blinds you know mm-hmm. and uh, and they scream and yell about what a bad play it was and how he was supposed to raise it you know what I mean and so there's just a huge misunderstandings on how to play you know um, uh, how to play these tournaments right. Hmm. Interesting. Um, interesting perspective also, I guess, uh, the, you know, in terms of the live versus the online, uh, the, the speed and the blind levels, uh, you know, obviously it makes that difference. And I uh, know the legendary, you, you dodge all those bullets, I guess it's, uh, they come a little bit faster at you uh, online. Um. Well, I mean, part of dodging bullets is looking someone in the eyes, right? Mm. And saying, oh my God, I've seen that look before. I mean, Doyle Brunson talks about it in his book, Super System, uh, where where the the you know where the greatest players in the world know when somebody has the best possible hand. It's a certain look. When someone has the nuts, it's a certain look. And so if you can figure out, uh, you know, if you understand that look, you can save a lot of money, you know, because you know you'll know that the guy has pocket aces if you have pocket queens and you can get away versus. You can detect some nervousness if it's ace king or jacks or tens. And so it's about looking someone, looking at someone, you know, do they fidget? How do they move their fingers? How do they move their hands? How do they move, you know, their eyes? Um, how much do they bet? And, you know, all those patterns, all those tells, you know, they end up you know, adding up to a picture. And if you get mm-hmm. that picture right, 
you have nine lives, yep. nine extra lives. And so online, we don't have that picture. Right. Well, fascinating perspective. Um, well, I know obviously you, you're oh, doing the online ground. Right. Your viewers, oh, sure. might want to your viewers might want to hear this. Let me just say this. Sure, there go for it. There are timing tells. Okay. And so I have noticed, I mean, I want a lot of money playing online poker after basically not playing in the U.S. since it was legal in 2011. Uh-huh. I started playing online poker and I won, you know, six, seven hundred thousand, more than that. I've won a lot of money. And I, what I figured out is when people, uh, you know, there's timing tells. And so that saved me a lot of money. Um, they don't show up as much in the tournaments with the tournament players because they're a little bit more consistent. They're looking for that kind of stuff. But, you know, there are, ti- there are timing tells that show up. It's just not as powerful, not nearly as powerful as actually seeing someone. Okay, I just wanted to... For sure. Go ahead. For sure. Um, well, besides the online grind that you're doing now from Cabo, and you did, obviously, uh, a legendary grind uh, at, uh, in Las Vegas at the Aria during the first portion of this summer's series, you've been very careful during this pandemic to isolate... So besides doing the online poker play, what else have you been up to in your regular day-to-day life uh, at home for these many months? Well, I'll tell you one thing. So we launched a SPAC, S-P-A-C. It's a special acquisition, uh, basically a stock where you raise money and you sell it to Wall Street. So so we had a stock, it's called D-M-Y-T-U-N, okay? And that SPAC was trading at $10 a share, and it was prepared to take a company out between $1 and $3 billion. Now, what's the advantage of a SPAC? Most of of the viewers listening to this don't know what a SPAC is. But if you want to take a company public in a traditional way uh, until maybe 2018, everybody had to pay the investment bankers 10% of their company, Uh 10% of the whole company just to go public. And so, you know, if you have a $2 billion company, you're paying investment bankers $200 million, and they would earn that money. And so now sometimes you get the fee reduced. But what SPACs do is they allow people to go public very quickly, which is very important in 2020 because the, the market is still, you know, up. And once, you know, it's very hard to go public in a down market. And so, mm-hmm. you know, so anyway... Um, We launched a SPAC, and the beautiful thing was I brought Greg Carlin, the CEO of Rush Street Gaming, Rush Street Interactive, RSI. I brought him to the SPAC. Now, I'd invested money in the SPAC. And, uh, and, And because I brought that company in, we loved Rush Street Interactive. And so we decided to take them public at $1.8 billion. Did I do any of the paperwork on the deal? No. Did I put in, you know, $300,000 of my own money? Yes. Did I do any of the work at all? Only at the beginning when I took our CEO, Niccolo DeMasi, and put him in touch with Greg Carlin, who's an old friend of mine. And so I took Greg Carlin to Niccolo DeMasi with the intent. And, you know, I was well compensated. I mean, uh, you know, people that close deals like this often make $10 million dollars. Um, for putting companies together, and, and Goldman Sachs did a great job, and they were involved in this deal. But I, you know, I, I basically, uh, you know, won—I don't know, 
10 or 15 online tournaments, you know, um, in what I got paid to just bring these two together. And some people would say, Phil, that was just a phone call. Well, you know, there's a reason I'm on, on 10 different advisory boards for 10 different companies, and some of them are worth a couple hundred million bucks by now. And the reason yep. why, and that means I own one, two, three percent of all these companies, the 10 advisory boards, and I'm helping the founder out a lot, and it's been fun for me. Some people would say that was just one phone call. You shouldn't make millions for, from, for one phone call. And then other people would say it took a lifetime to cultivate, you know, and to even put yourself in a position to be able to invest in a SPAC. Absolutely. And so, you know, that was to me a huge part of, you know, of of Phil Hellmuth, you know, uh, not version two because it's not updated, but version (laughs) one, version a version one. Okay. Version one is it's just, you know, that guy is just about winning poker tournaments and version one is going to be the dominant person in my life. And, you know, version one, uh, you know, uh, loves his wife and has been married 30 years and loves his kids and puts family first, uh, you know, and, and version A um, is, hey, you know, uh, if I'm not going to be traveling the world playing all these $100,000 buying tournaments, if I'm not going to be traveling the world playing in high stakes cash games, and I stopped doing that in 1997, right. uh, then I'm going to have a lot of time. So what am I going to do? You know, um, and I always thought, hey, I could make, you know, $50 million in business. And now I'm wondering if I can't make $500 million in business. But I'm not going to, you know, I can't be a CEO. You know, I I can't, I couldn't work those hours. And so, you know, within the framework of the hours that I work, you know, uh, those are very high quality hours when I do work them. But I'm also, you know, concerned about, you know, taking care of my health and Phil Hemmuth version one needs good health to break all the World Series of Poker, you know, bracelet records. So well, the know, ones you don't already yeah. hold. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyway, the business stuff has been crazy. I just joined another company. I just joined my 10th advisory board for a company called Prize Picks. And they've been a lot of fun to watch because you can, you know, they have legalized parlay betting in 60 percent of the United States of America. And uh, I bought in you know, uh, uh, and joined the advisory board. And I think they're up 5X in the last few months. I helped them out a little bit, um, raised some money and, and with some vision. And, but anyway, it's been, it's been a really, it's been really a fun ride. And, you know, it's amazing. It, it was, feels pretty cool, you know, to be the one who brings, you know, this Rush Street Interactive and we've, we've raised some money already. They're going out at $1.8 billion dollars. And uh, I'm going to end up with a bunch of stock, and uh, and uh, it's just it's it's just really fun to be involved in this stuff, and and so anyway, I just wanted to tell you about well, that, the, that, version A. It's fantastic. It's fantastic, and clearly you haven't just been twiddling your thumbs and and being bored and staring at the walls. It's good to keep busy, and and you know you you've done a. You know, with with that, and you know, obviously in the past you've done a little bit of name dropping. I know you have a, a lot of friends in Silicon Valley, some businessmen that you uh, often talk that you play in the home game with. Um, I'm wondering, as far as this home game, do you approach playing in those those home games with your friends in Silicon Valley a little, little bit differently? 
differently or exactly the same as playing in WSOP tournaments? Is it just the difference between a, a cash game or a tournament, or is there anything else that maybe goes into your mental preparation for those home games? Yeah, those home games are completely different. Um, you know, uh, 30% of the time I'll be drinking with the guys or 40% of the time, you know, <laughs> you know, and I mean, you know, the red, the level of red wine that they can, unfortunately, I don't like red wine. So, you know, if they, consume, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's nothing for them to pull out a $4,000 bottle of red wine. Well, there's, you know, eight of us or nine of us there. So <laughs> that goes pretty quickly. And then another 4k bottle. And so, you know, and then maybe, okay, well, maybe we'll go down to a 1K bottle. But the red wine that they've consumed is amazing. Uh, my friends have been the most generous, nicest people ever. I'm staying in one of my friend's houses right now in Cabo uh, in a place called Miravilla. It's beautiful here. Private golf course was out there today playing. And so, but the mindset that I take to that game is not the same. Um, I do sometimes a lot, sometimes uh, I'm tired. Uh, before I go and play with my friends and I know I'm really tired and uh, and then I say to myself Phil just be careful and those nights when I'm tired but mm -hmm. I warn myself you're tired and you could lose a lot I tend to do really well on those nights I've noticed because I've kind of warned myself I, I, my guard is up and uh, and you know and those games I mean you know uh, you know and I talk about this in my book but we pay at the end of the year so you know you could have a beautiful, uh, a huge balance, but you can't collect a penny until January 1st. And, uh, and so, you know, and so no night is that stressful. I mean, if, if I lost, if I lost a hundred thousand in one night with my friends, um, and this year I started off a hundred thousand loser in the game, uh, coming out of January. Um, and so, you know, of course I've done really, really well because, you know, uh, playing online poker with the, with, with the same guys, mm -hmm. you know, has, we play a lot more hands and we play a lot more often. And so, um, but anyway, yeah, it's, it's, I, I do not, I have a completely different mindset, but it does force me to play tired. And then, and then I realize that, you know, I'm not afraid to play cash games tired anymore as long as my guard's up. Right. When, when you work on your game, or maybe when you review your sessions, are there any particular skills or concepts or, or things that you try to improve on? You know, in this in the Silicon Valley game, uh -huh. uh, I call it the. Um, oh, I have a really really great nickname for it. Um, uh, the master of the universe. I call it the Masters of the Universe poker game. <laughs> and you're He Man, I guess. Yes, and and. Um, the Masters of the Universe poker game is just an absolutely beautiful game. And, and in that game, um, I'm forced to play a different style of poker than I play anywhere else. I have to be the super tight guy that doesn't do a lot of bluffing um, because everybody calls me. And so it does change my game, but it also keeps me thinking about No Limit Hold'em. I also have this thing, Robbie, that people don't even believe. Because if you're a professional poker player, I, I admit it's hard to believe. But for like five years, I never, I didn't lose three times in a row on a cash game. Mm -hmm. Not just with my friends, but in Vegas. The first time after a loss, I kind of, I would really beat myself up and say, what did you do? And I'd go back and think about every small mistake. And I'd always go back towards play tighter, play tighter, play tighter. And if I lost a second time in a row, I'd be like distraught. 
and I'd just tear my game apart, you know, and and so it just worked out that I just didn't lose three times in a row for years. Wow. And so I, you know, I have this way of, of being kind of hard on myself when I lose. That's all changed during COVID because now I play every day. It's one thing when you play once every 10 days with your friends, right? you know, and, and you lose, you can afford to beat yourself up a little bit, but now I got to play the next day and the next day and the next day. Sometimes I'll play in two games in one night. And so, you know, you find yourself losing more often. And I'm sure that I've lost three days in a row since the COVID stuff began. Began. Um, you just don't have the time to make all the perfect adjustments. Sure. Huh, interesting. Well, um, on a grander level than just the home game, of course, many people say you are the greatest tournament poker player in the world. And obviously many of the records that you currently hold, they stand on pretty solid ground as far as you know who may be next in line on the list. Are there any players in particular who you feel are maybe nipping at your heels and maybe a threat to your claim as the greatest tournament poker player of all time? I mean, you know, I think that <clears throat> I think that the guys that are, are threats are the guys that are winning World Series of Poker tournaments or World Poker Tour tournaments, because those are the ones that are really remembered. You know, I'm not sure that everybody remembers how well people did in some of these other events because the fields aren't really even that big. And so, you know, you think of somebody like Adrian Mateos um, and uh, Dominic Nietzsche. These guys have won like three bracelets each or four bracelets. They're, they're really doing it. You know, Negreanu, uh has six bracelets. And so, you know, some of these guys, I, I think, you know, are really tough. I mean, there's, you know, um, there's some other guys I think of, you know, uh, when you think of John Monet. Uh, John Hennigan, John Hennigan, you know, is someone who we knew to be great. And for whatever reason, he got lost for a little while there. Uh, if you ask him that, he'd agree lost within himself for whatever reason hmm. and, uh, just has emerged and it's just showing us how great he is. And if you look at who's won the most bracelets in the last three, four years, he's right up there on that list. Yeah. Um, uh, Johnny World, John Hennigan, I'm talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. John, John Monet being a great player. And so, you know, there are these great players um, and, you know, uh, that, you know, that, that, but I mean, it's real tough to go after the, the all the bracelets. Um, but it's, it's not, I don't think it's as hard as people think if you're a great player, it's not as hard as you think it is if you're a great player to win tournaments. If you look at Negreanu, what does he have? 10, 10 second place finishes? It's got a lot, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think I have 10. And yep. so, you know, that's 10 second-place finishes and, and six first-place finishes for him. That's, yeah. You know, so, you know, um, so we'll see. I mean, it, it also takes dedication, and it takes a will to want to win to just show up year after year and play your best and to keep working on your game and to keep things fresh. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure everybody has that either. Yep, for sure. The longevity is a big, a big component, and uh, it doesn't just oh, okay. I show up and get a bracelet. You got to earn it, you know, year after year, and, and you've obviously done so. Uh, you mentioned the mixed games, the non-hold'em games, and uh, yes, the the bracelet you don't, you know, that that is not hold'em is in Raz that you've mentioned. Um, is that your favorite non-hold'em variant, or is there uh, something else that you particularly love that beyond hold'em? The Raz is amazing because I have two firsts, a second, and a fifth, and that's just in the last five years. Um, so I don't know what happened with the Raz, 
But all of us, but the, all of a sudden, the game just made sense to me. But there's a couple of other guys that the game just suddenly makes sense to. You know, you look at uh, you know the Italian pirate. You know, uh, Max Pescatori. Yeah, all of a yep. sudden, Max Pescatori's deep in all these RAS tournaments, and you know, and there's one other guy who suddenly is there a lot. You know, Ted Forrest. Ted Forrest mm-hmm. has two firsts in a second, I think, or uh, maybe not. Uh, but anyway. Maybe, but anyway, Ted and I both have two firsts. I also have a second and a fifth. And so there's just something about Raz. It's it's the way, you know, you have to watch. They're going to deal a card at you face up, and it's going to land. And the question is, did that, whole, did that card pair one of your whole cards? Mm-hmm. And if it did, then, you know, then then you have to be able to realize it. So there are people that play RAS, they're way, way, way too tight. They fold hands they shouldn't fold. And then there's people in RAS that just assume every time a low card comes, it pairs your whole card. And they're way too loose. And so there's just there's a really nice mixture in there that makes sense when you're supposed to bet, when you're supposed to bluff, when you're supposed to call. And, you know, and there's some very tricky situations in RAS. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think I, think I could say, I mean, I have the best record in Hold'em tournaments uh, in the world in Limit Hold'em. You know, so sure. I mean, I have the best record in No Limit Hold'em at the World Series of Poker. I have the best record in Pot Limit Hold'em and Raz. And so, you know, I mean, I think if I could get the best record in a couple of other games, uh, that would be amazing, right? Wouldn't it be amazing if all of a sudden Omaha eight or better, uh, I won three bracelets and everybody would say, oh my God, how good is he? <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing if in Stud Eight or better, you know, tournament which I've been deep a lot in my life, I suddenly picked up three bracelets there. And so, you know, there's still hope to become the greatest of all time in some of these games. And I keep pursuing it and I keep working hard and, you know, talking a lot. You know, Mike DeMouth Madison, I was one of the best Omaha Eight or better players in the world in tournaments. I think everybody on the inside knows this. And so he and I talk strategy and he's helped me there. Um, I've helped him with his no limit. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I think there's, you know, a lot of room for all of us to improve in every game. Fantastic. Like, I, love, I love the ambitious mentality, even though you're the, you're the leader, uh, you still got uh, plenty of goals. I think that's, that's fantastic. It's very inspiring as well uh, after already a Hall of Fame career. Um, Phil, let's, let's switch gears a little bit, maybe. Let's move towards Phil Helmuth, the person, as opposed to just the pure poker player, um, you seem to gravitate towards television cameras. And of course, you enjoy being in the spotlight. You emcee numerous charity poker tournaments. And I even remember a few years ago, you you went out of your way. You approached the WSOP main event featured table on ESPN and just sort of out of the blue, you just handed out your poker bread autobiography to all of the players. It's a brilliant promotional thing. I love it. What is it that you enjoy so much about being on camera and entertaining people? Well, first of all, there's Phil Helmuth, the person, and, and then there's, you know, Phil Helmuth, the promoter. Right. So, I mean, I think, I think the person, I think I've been very lucky to hang out with amazing people in life. I mean, I asked myself, why am I staying in this beautiful house? You know, uh, looking outside, I see an infinity pool and you can look out and see the ocean. Why am I so lucky to have such amazing uh, friends? And and I think you know I I'm authentic. There's no bullshit. I don't lie to people. 
I might lie about a poker hand, but I, I never lie on <laughs> the table. People like that authenticity. You know, uh, I'm real. And so, you know, and, and, you know, and I work hard. People don't understand this, but my wife and I have been married 30 years. And she is, you know, a psychiatrist at a famous university. We won't mention where. But she and I have spent, you know, have spent a thousand hours in therapy together, the two of us. Her saying, listen, you messed this up. And I'm like, oh, my God, that's the exact thing I thought would make you the happiest. Oh, and she's like, no, 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 you can see why. You know, it's almost <clears throat> some of the men are from Mars, women are from Venus stuff uh, are in there. But, <clears throat> you know, beyond that, then you figure out you can you learn to become a better person. You learn to communicate better with everybody else. You learn to see yourself and your flaws. And so for me, the Phil Hemmuth person is someone I'm really, really proud of. I mean, I have some you know, friends that are just my best friend, you know, Chamath Palihapitiya is, you know, just one gem of a, of a man who's, you know, uh, made billions of dollars and become, you know, globally famous. And, you know, and, and, and I like the way he uh, thinks. I like the way he approaches life. I like the way he approaches business. Uh, also a great poker player. And, and he and I play you know, high stakes Chinese poker. I, he's probably a lifetime ahead of me in that, unfortunately, but it's close. <laughs> and so, you know, I mean, I think that the, when it comes to the person, above even having great friends is, 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 is family. And so I raised two sons. My sons are now 30 and 27. And, uh, you know, and they still take all my phone calls, which is a good sign. And so, you know, uh, it was always family first for me. And, you know, Robbie, that, you know, so in 1997, I, I made a decision. I can go around the world trying to make a million a year playing poker uh, or, you know, or I can, you know, make a couple hundred million and stay home in business. And, you know, the decision to stay home and do business was both, all right, I don't want to burn myself out and play all the time. And, you know, even above that was, I want to be there for my kids. Mm -hmm. I want to watch them grow up. I want to coach their basketball teams. I want to coach their soccer teams. I started out refing their teams and I thought, you know, let me turn to coach instead. And so being there for my sons and my wife, you know, that's Phil Helmuth, the person. And, you know, and being there for my friends, you know, and that means if they have some kind of crisis going on in their life, um, uh, you know, emotional crisis, uh, you know, or financial, if they want to talk about that, or if I have an emotional crisis going on in my life. And so, you know, I'm there for my friends and they're there for me and it's led to some great relationships. We've had the same people playing in my poker game since 2009. It's been amazing mm -hmm. for me to watch a bunch of them become billionaires. Fantastic. Um, I do want to follow up, though, and say then, I guess, the Phil, the promoter, though, what is it that you enjoy so much about being on camera and entertaining people? I do like being, you know, I think it starts, it starts by figuring out you're good at it, right? And then once you know you're good at it, you know, in other words... For some, you know, right away in poker, I was told by Steve Lipscomb, who started the World Poker Tour, I have a tremendous mm -hmm. amount of respect for, that Phil, you know, we need more Phil Helmuth. But there wasn't anything they could do about it because, you know, they, they only did the final six. I was also, I went out with Matt Morantz, who had 441 Productions, mm -hmm. and, and Matt, 
you know, was the original World Series of Poker guru, the producer. And right. he met me in Vegas before they covered their first series. And they said, Phil, he said, we're going to make you into a huge star. And, and uh, he said, you'll probably make a fortune. And, uh, and that was pretty cool to hear. And, uh, and, and it turns out that, you know, um, uh, that I have some charisma and that, you know, I can be John McEnroe-esque and my emotions <laughs> flow freely. And the one yep. thing you can say when you watch me is that's authentic. When I'm pissed yep. off, I'm screaming and yelling. Half the people have that exact emotion in their lives. Maybe even 90% of the people can relate to that emotion. Now, Half of those 90% will say, oh, my God, I would never act that way. This guy's a jerk and I don't like him. But they keep watching. And the other half are like, oh, my God, this guy's my hero. He speaks the truth. He speaks his truth and he's pissed off and he hates losing. And, uh, and then they keep watching. And so then, then, you know, then I remember the first time I gave a speech. I was nervous as could be. Now I could go in front of any audience in the world. You could just teleport me to the front of an audience, any audience on the planet, uh, and tell me what I had to talk about. And I would deliver a speech that would, I think, that would be, that would be very impactful uh, for that group. And so, and that comes maybe as a function of me spending, you know, so much time working on myself mm-hmm. and, and so much time studying concepts, you know. I mean, I wrote a book, Positivity, in, in which, you know, there's eight life tips in there. Yep. I discovered for myself. And so it's, you know, dropping eight life tips off in a speech, you know, one everyone could relate to if they put me in front of an audience as I talk about forgiveness on how important it is to forgive people in your life. And, you know, I can tell you that in my life, there's no one I hate, but I forgave everybody a long time ago in the 90s. And so, you know, a concept I learned when I was studying Buddhism with my wife, you know, and uh, the Lama Suryadas. You know, and so and so I think then once you understand that you can deliver the speech and once you understand that you have information that could be impactful for the people listening to the speech. Now, you know that, you know, you now you're not you're going to be confident. You're not like if I were standing up there delivering a speech on, you know, on covid, uh, I would probably not be very confident. But, you know. Uh, when it comes to teaching people, I'm confident. And so uh, same thing with poker. When I talk about, you know, uh, uh, when I'm at the World Series of Poker, I love doing that. I love that job. Now, I've never given up a tournament to do the World Series of Poker. A lot of people have done that. But I will continue to play and say, hey, take what you can. But, you know, when I tell Maury I'm done, you know, or I'm ready to come in, he embraces me and he has me, hey, when's our next break? All right, Phil's, Phil's coming back. Be ready to go in 45 minutes. And, you know, and sometimes, and that allows, and sometimes then I get away with wearing my sponsor's clothing on television <laughs> because I'll say, hey, I'm coming straight from the tournament. I didn't yep. have time, a chance to go and change, and he supports that. And so, you know, um, and then once you know you're good at it, um, you know, then that's good. But who knows No Limit Hold'em better than I do? I've sure. Been, I've won, you know, 13 world championships playing Hold'em. And I think, you know, somebody else maybe has won three or four. Someone else on the planet has won three or four, but I'm number one at 13. And so when it comes to talking about No Limit Hold'em, being under the spotlight, all the pressure and, you know, and hands, I'm really good at describing that. 
And so, you know, and so I didn't study GTO. I didn't study all the stuff that the kids. So I'm not going to be the best for if you want to learn GTO, don't come to me. Got it. But if you want to understand why a play makes sense from a game theory point of view, um, I'll have my opinions, which are, have proven to be valid over and over again. So, and more than that, I can deliver to the public. So I know a... that when I'm up there, I like being a part of this. Uh, uh-huh. And I missed it one year. The, the year that Merson won, I decided that since I was leading the Player of the Year award, I didn't want to be there to anti-sweat Merson. He had to win first place. Uh-huh. So I was in Manhattan watching. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, I'll never miss another World Series of Poker again. The World Series of Poker needs me. We need Daniel. We need the stars to be there. Somebody, one of the stars has to be on air, okay? And if it's not going to be me, then Daniel should be there or, or one of the other stars. Nick Shulman's, you know, pretty amazing. And so, but it, you have to have, you have to have, you know, it just doesn't feel complete unless you have a veteran star up there. Yep. And so I realized that that year when Merson won, and so every year since then, I know that I'm staying in Vegas even if there's no tournaments until the end. And that's just the way it's going to be. And so, you know, I never know. It's not like Maury Escondani and, and, and the ESPN crew tells me, Hey, Phil, you're a number one choice. They never tell me, they don't give me any confidence. You know? <laughs> but I know this when I call them and tell them I'm ready, boom, there's a spot for me. And so I have a lot of fun being on stage. And this year, uh, it was Maria Hope. Yeah, uh, it was it was there with me and um, and uh, and it's just it's so much fun to be up there. And, and, and you know, and I, and I have a suit on and, you know, unless I can get away with the sponsor stuff, which <laughs> I was able to get away with almost every day because there were tournaments almost every day. Yep. Um, well, it's great. And, and, and I, I love those answers. And of course, I've, I've watched you. I've heard a lot of interviews that you've done and uh, look, look, the, the personal, the promoter. And, and it, I can't help but smile because it really truly is authentic. And I'm certainly enjoying it. And uh, you've earned uh, all of the spots that you've received uh, and the opportunities that you received, at least in my eyes. And I'm sure many other people agree I will say one thing, though. You say you've never missed the World Series. I have to challenge that a little bit, though, Phil. Last year, you made a decision to take a trip to Machu Picchu. And I know you had some good reasons. You said it was a once-in-a-lifetime. But now, you know, one year later, in retrospect, do you have any regrets about doing that? Do you wish you would have stayed in Las Vegas? Or perhaps you want to share some, some favorite memories from that trip to Machu Picchu? Well, you have to understand, uh, Peter Goober is an amazing guy. And he said, hey, he said, hey, listen, we're going to it's going to be you and Tony Robbins and me and Michael Strahan. Hmm. Uh, and we're going to take Tony's jet. We have a special landing permit uh, to land, you know, in Peru near Machu Picchu. And, uh, you know, they just don't give those things out. Right. And then and then we're going to go straight to Galapagos Island. So. You know, a week on a yacht in Galapagos, Galapagos, Galapagos Islands. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and including, and so I just thought, wow, this is a once in a lifetime thing. I said no. And then I thought, man, you, you know, you're going to miss two weeks of the series. It's really going to hurt. I started looking at the schedule. It's really going to hurt. The only thing I regret is that it, I was starting to come into form right before the trip. Mm. I had a bunch of deep finishes. And, you know, and so, 
you know, it turned out that, you know, we, we, we did take Tony Robbins jet. Uh, Peter Goober was amazing. Rob Lowe, I really had a lot of time, fun with Rob Lowe and we had some pretty cool people on that thing, but unfortunately, uh, you know, I, unfortunately Tony Robbins and Michael Strahan ended up, uh, having to bail. And so, you know, well in advance, and, you know, both had really good reasons. It's, it's, it's not, and so, you know, but I had a great trip and, uh, and Peter is an amazing guy. Uh, you know, he, he, he owns, uh, the Warriors. He owns, uh, the Los Angeles Dodgers baseball team. He owns 50, you know, small market, uh, you know, teams when it comes to, you know, the, like the, the secondary baseball stuff, you know, the, mm -hmm. the smaller ones, D league and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, he, he's an amazing guy that it was just an absolute pleasure to be with. Um, he, you know, I mean, I guess him and Tony Robbins are best friends uh, mm -hmm. for a long time. Peter was, you know, running Sony when he was 28. He was the CEO of Sony. Uh, I think Sony gave him a billion dollars back then in the eighties. <laughs> and so, you know, he, he is an amazing guy that just is so smart and has the best house I've ever seen. And I've seen some <laughs> magnificent castles and so but i mean it's also just the wisdom that he has is amazing you know he wrote a book that people talk about all the time you know he you know you you know you talk about you know uh the top 50 or whatever what's that tv show the dick clark uh productions you know where mm -hmm. the, the, he owns that so hmm. you know when they put on their when they put on the uh you know and so I remember going with him to that. Well, he owns it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, you know, uh, so, I mean, you know, uh, two weeks, I figured, you know, this was the one time in my life uh, that, you know, that I could go to Galapagos Islands. I don't think I would have gotten it done. And mm -hmm. Machu Picchu, I think I probably would have made it to Machu Picchu at some point in my life. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, um, I do think that I hurt my chances of winning the main event severely because... I knew that I would be playing on day two. I didn't know I would come in so tired. I came in exhausted on day two, mm. and I played really bad poker. And I, I think I might have made it through the day, um, but, you know, I'm not even sure I made it through the day. I just didn't play good. Mm -hmm. I was exhausted. Um, you know, I will say that, uh, you know, we're talking about the 2019 World Series of Poker, and I want to find some positivity there. I told Maury that I'd start doing the coverage and I said, but I'm going to play tomorrow's tournament. And so I hopped in the $5,000 turbo. Well, it turns out that I'd won the 5K turbo and I'd had a, 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 a um, and I'd already had a ninth place finish. So in three years, you know, the poker world's like, well, Phil can't play turbos. It's all math. Mm -hmm. So I'd already won it. And so I played in that thing, and I remember very, it's very interesting, Robbie, the timing of this, because I had to go live on air, and I'm watching the time tick down, tick down, tick down, tick down for the last possible buy-in. And so with a few seconds to go, I still hadn't been on air yet. And I knew I had to be on air for 20 minutes. It looked like I was going to be on air four minutes later. And so I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to miss so much this tournament. And I said, <laughs> and I ran out to the tournament director. I had my... My, my, uh, I couldn't get away with, you know, uh, I think, I think I was all mic'd up. Well, mm -hmm. I was all, 
mic'd up. I had the microphones on for the ESPN stuff and uh, all, you know, you wear two or three mics and I had all this gear on and I went right to the tournament and I started playing. You have to understand as I'm sitting at the stage where we film, you can see the tournament area to the left. So I yep. go and I sit down and I play and I got to play, you know, five, six minutes. And I remember I got it on with jacks against Queens and I hit a jack on the river, but the, the way I saw it, I mean, it looked like I was not going to hit. The, it looked like I was just out. And my series was over. It was the last possible that I could play in. And I was heading back up. Well, I hit a jack. And instead, you know, uh, the ESPN people were giving me hands. And, you know, they, what they do when you do my job is they give you, these are the two hands we're going to cover. Uh-huh. And, then, and then you look at the hands the way they were played on the paper. And you make your evaluations on you know, on what you saw and what you liked and what you didn't like. And you try to usually, usually I'm there watching and I know that someone maybe have done something because somebody was playing fast or slow. Anyway, they brought me the hands. And uh, so I was preparing as I'm playing in the tournament, I was preparing to go live on ESPN in the front of the whole world, actually. Uh, The whole, you know, I don't know how many countries this is in. And so, you know, and so, but the jack comes. So, so now I have to run back up uh, three minutes before I'm due. And uh, so I'm on stage. We nail our segment, I felt like. And then the minute's over, like, all right, Phil, that's it. So now I run back down and I'm playing the tournament. <laughs> well, it's a turbo. So I missed like a level, you know, a whole level. Oh, my God. But that's okay. But I'm in there and I, all of a sudden I'm going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper. But I'm preparing for the next ESPN segment the whole time. And the next <laughs> one's really going to hurt because... You know, there's going to be like 40 players left or 50 players left that I'm going to lose a lot of chips. And uh, and luckily, uh, there was no next segment that night. And I go on and I make day two and uh, and we come back for uh, for day two. But this time, um, I think that Maury had me. I put a suit on. I dressed Mm -hmm. for ESPN this time and uh, I put a suit on. And, you know, and, a, and we went from 30 down to 20, down to 15. And I called my wife and said, all right, honey, you can get on your flight. She was standing by at the airport. She hops on her flight to Vegas. And meanwhile, I've already been in makeup. <laughs> I had to go early. <laughs> I had to be in makeup before the tournament started, you know. <laughs> so I'm in makeup. But now I'm at the final table. And my wife is on the plane on her way down. And unfortunately for me, I finished fifth or sixth in that tournament. Ah. And, uh, but I was already trying to wonder what I was going to do in 45 minutes when I had to go live. Could I really ask the final four players, hey, guys, I have to go live on ESPN. Can you please just wait for me for 20 minutes? I think I would have asked, and I think they would have said yes. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time I went on, uh, they were down to two. So um, I think my opponent would have said yes. I mean, otherwise I would have been forced to, to let Maury down and I would not have wanted to do that. Right. Uh, but I remember trying to think, you know, I don't think I can let Maury down. I think I have to go do this even if I'm at the final table. <laughs> and so, but anyway, uh, my wife lands and uh, she's at the airport. I'm like, honey, I busted. She's like, oh <laughs> man, really? And I'm like, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, and then she says, and I said, all right. And she's like, well, I'm going to fly back home. I'm like, all right, go ahead. So she, she doesn't even leave. She doesn't even leave security and books a flight home. What a true. Oh my God. (laughs) And I go live on, and I go live on ESPN. And I think, um, 
I don't remember which day this was of the tournament, but but anyway, so there I was. So I went to my day job live on ESPN, and it was it was pretty fun. Wow. Unbelievable. And I, I love that you, you you turned that there and, you know, I, I asked you about uh, Machu Picchu, I asked you, you know, you said the Galapagos, and then you said, I want to find some positivity. And I, I really, I really like that. I, I, I like that. And that resonates very much personally uh, for me, finding the positive uh, things to think about, even when not all of the experiences necessarily went the way you had wanted. Uh, I've got like so many more questions I want to ask you, but we do also have to get to our community segment. So I'll just skip to the final question that I prepared for you, Phil. And it does have to do with uh, positivity. And heck, of course, you know, it's, it's the title of the book that you wrote. It's an interesting question here. Um, unfortunately, sometimes that positivity sometimes also acts as a lightning rod for people who are determined for whatever reason to hate on the things that you, you do. So I'm wondering on a practical level, and I'm also kind of positive most of the time, how do you personally deal with the haters and continue on doing what you're doing and being that beacon of positivity? And maybe does the negative influence ever get to you emotionally? It's interesting. You know, I mean, I see it's interesting. I don't see a lot of, I'd say it's interesting. I think you're maybe more. Hmm. How would I put this? I don't see much negative. I don't see many people getting negative towards me. So <laughs> I guess I'm not as exposed. You could say maybe my ears are closed, but anybody that attacked me on Twitter, um, I've, you know, just blocked forever. So I don't see any negative Twitter uh, <laughs> about me um, because I just blocked everybody that said anything negative. And then, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, about three years ago, I was told for a long time not to defend myself. And about three, four, five years ago, I, oh, that's enough. I'm going to defend everything they say. Let's go. So the people said the weirdest, meanest, nastiest tweets to me. Mm -hmm. I would not. This is what I would do. I would retweet them. <laughs> well, Matthew, you said the most embarrassing thing that you've said all month, Robbie. Got it? And then somebody blasted it out to the world. Hmm. Well, you blast it out to the world yourself anyway. You deserve it to be out there. So I started putting, and you know what? It's amazing how, you know, and then what would happen is everybody, all my defenders would go crazy. You know what I mean? At this person. And so mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, this guy put it out there. He wants it seen. Okay, here we go. So it was kind of a tactic. And so, and then, and then I started, you know, if anybody says anything negative about me, that's not true. I'll fight it. You know, and 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 say that's not true. This is what happened, and there's always two sides to a story. Mm -hmm. So I haven't really seen much negativity towards me. Uh, I think the negativity that I do see towards me might not be the same stuff that you see. I think mm -hmm. you said I'm the best poker player in the world, and I thought to myself, there's probably a bunch of kids out there that would like to tell you that I'm not the best poker tournament player right now today. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you look at, and so when I think about that, I, I think, and I look back and I say, well, who's done better than I have in the last three or four years and no limit hold'em. And there's really not many people. I mean, if you take, sure, if you take all the high rollers that I don't play in, then there's a bunch of people out there that, you know, but I don't even play in those events, but you look just at the world series of poker and the world poker tour, who's done better than I have in no limit hold'em in the last three, four, five years. 
And it's really nobody. But I mean, you, you might be able to make a case for three or four people. And so, and so my, so that doesn't bother me very much. Um, and what criticism would you, would you, were you referring to? Oh, nothing specifically. It's just a matter of attitude. I, I specifically asked it in a general way because I think that, you know, the, the answer that you gave, I think could be, I don't know, for me, it's very instructive because it's a matter of approach. Sure. Cause, cause some okay, people, let's say this, yeah. let's say this then. Um, for for the people that attack me, like Nan, Daniel Negreanu used to attack me a lot, and uh, and he just motivated me, and he jokes about it. I was at his wedding, you know, last year. He jokes about it. He said, "Yeah, Phil, you just use me for motivation," and I'm like, "You're damn right, I do." You want to play people <laughs> I can't play? That that one falls that falls largely on my ears, and and I hear every word you say, and mm -hmm. I'm like, "All right, I'm gonna have to show this." He doesn't have faith in me. Let me just show the world how great I am. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Now, if you talk about, you know, uh, people that, you know, are, are trying to, which it, it kind of can lead, if somebody's kind of too brutal, it leads to forgiveness, right? Mm -hmm. and, and whether or not I want to forgive someone, random person or not. And generally speaking, if someone's saying something about me and they don't know me, then I'm like, all right, that person... I think if they spent an hour with me, they'd never say these things. Or I think to myself, if they spent an hour looking at my results, they wouldn't say these things. And so that's kind of easy to kind of say, okay, if someone attacks me for a good reason, um, I'll say, well, they have a good reason to attack. I understand that as well. Uh, for the people that, you know, that have really hurt me and let me down, um, those people I just, I have a way of forgiving. And so, you know, it's like, I like to think of maybe I've, I've never said this out loud before. It's interesting. I just came up with this, but it's almost like the hate. It's almost like I'm Teflon to hate. Mm. You know, I love that. Um, That's a great quote. And the reason I can be Teflon to hate is by forgiving everybody. And so mm. this forgive, 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 uh, allows me to walk around the planet. Just imagine this in your mind. You're Robbie, you're walking down a hallway. Now imagine the hallway is infinitely wide and infinitely long, and there's infinite amount of people walking. But now let's narrow that stream down a little bit and say that just the people you know who or who have met you in your life are walking towards you. Now, if I have a whole lifetime of people that I've met and known and hung out with and fought with walking at me, I will not have to avert my gaze. I will not have to turn left or turn right. Rather, I can walk straight down that hallway with pride, you know, because I've forgiven everybody. And there's no need for me to use any negative thoughts towards anyone. I walk straight up the hallway filled with positivity, no negativity towards any human being as they walk by me. And that's very powerful. And I designed that for my life. And people listening to this, hashtag positivity is the book where I talk about a three-step process for forgiving everybody you hate in your life. Huh. And I forgave everybody. And so when I walk down that hallway, it's very powerful to say that all I feel is positivity. Wow. 
it really it really is very powerful and uh Wow. Like, like, like if I had to imagine what the answer would be to that question when I asked it, uh, that was far better any, than anything I could have imagined. And uh, thank you. Though that, that definitely completes my slate of questions. And uh, I do want to move on. And I, we're, I know where our time is limited. So I want to try to, you know, we got, my God, dozens of questions came in from the Cards Chat community on the forum. How many minutes so do I we do have? Wanna tr- well, no, as long as you want. I don't want to, you know, curtail I'll your time. To, it's up to you. I'll try, I'll try uh, to narrow my answers a little bit. <laughs> I'm the there longest we go. interviewer. No, I love it. Oh, thank you. No, but I, 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 I love talking with you. And Phil Howard, I'd love to talk with you. This is just, uh, first, and all, first of all, uh, very personally enjoyable. And I know all of our listeners and at Cards Chat I'll always love to hear from you. Um, and maybe, uh, you know, this will set us up for another interview somewhere down the road to get to all the questions that I, I wasn't able to get to. But anyway, uh, we will turn to the Cards Chat community and we'll see what questions our listeners had for you, Phil. Uh, let's try to tackle as many as we can here. Um, I'll go somewhat rapid fire. Shells, uh, that's the name of our community member. Shells asked, what hobbies do you have uh, in that you do in your spare time? And do you ever see yourself retiring from poker? I will never retire from poker. Um, now, I just, I, I love playing and, you know, I've, I've been fortunate that I haven't burned myself out on the game. Maybe the last five months I burned myself out for the first time, but, uh, you know, I, I still love poker and I think I'll continue to love it forever. Uh, what hobbies? I mean, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, I like being on advisory boards and, and helping people build companies. To me, that's a hobby. Uh, today I went golfing. Um, that's definitely a hobby. Um, my wife and I watch a lot of, uh, you know, uh, TV shows. Um, mm-hmm. I guess that's a hobby. Um, sure. she'll lie on, she'll lie on, on the left side of the couch. I'll be in the middle and her legs will be in my lap and we'll watch all of our shows and, and, you know, and when I'm home and, and she's home, it seems like we spend, you know, two, three hours watching television every night. And, and that's nice for her to unwind. Um, awesome. Awesome. It's great hobbies. Uh, a user, uh, crystals, C R S T A L S crystals in our community, uh, asks a bunch of questions. We had to narrow it down, just get a couple of them in here. Uh, Phil, how difficult is it in this day and age to play against the young guns who tend to target you at the poker table? It, not difficult at all. I, although I think it's interesting. I do feel a little bit like, uh, it does feel like it just depends on which generation of young guns, right? This generation of young guns is, you know, putting a lot of money in with pocket deuces, pocket threes, pocket fours. And that kind of harkens back to the generation maybe of 04 and 05 doing the same thing. And then, you know, and so it's not that difficult. I do have a respect for some of the guys and uh, for some of the young guns for sure. And uh, but I respect all my opponents table and I try not to think about it, you know, when, I, when I'm playing. I, I I haven't even given myself as good of a chance in some of the tournaments I played with the young guns. Um, I find myself, you know, my biggest weakness is I super tired a lot. And so I'd rather than play super tired. I find myself showing up four five, six hours late too often in the tournaments I play with them. And it, one of these days I'm going to, you know, impress them a lot more than I have so far. 
<laughs> Another question from Crystals. Um, and you had mentioned uh, previously about uh, Mike Mattisau streaming his online play. Is that something you ever intend to do, to stream your online poker play? I mean, that's something to be saved for, you know, a site, right? So, so if I signed a big deal with, you know, a site like Party Poker, um, or someone like that, uh, then streaming would be something that I might do for that reason. Because I think, you know, I, you know, when it comes to pineapple poker, I started, you know, I was given 10% of that app and, uh, and I started streaming and now I think we have 12 or 14,000 daily active users on that app. It's worth a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but we started with zero. And the funny thing mm -hmm. about our pineapple app is that originally it was filled with guys who were worth a hundred million dollars and a lot of <laughs> NBA athletes. And so I find it very interesting <laughs> that some of these famous NBA players, you know, have accounts. <laughs> and, and, uh, so, I mean, but, you know, <laughs> we were playing poker with three of the Warriors players and, um, and it spread fast because it's a, a fun game to play. And I'll never forget on our app, in the 2017 playoffs, uh, when we had a game at Golden State, 2016 playoffs, or whatever it was, we won that year. We had a game at Golden State, and 15 minutes before the game started, maybe 19 minutes before the game started, all of a sudden, three Warriors players were clicking at me. And I knew <laughs> they were in Cleveland, and I knew they were in the locker room, but they just wanted to get their minds off of the game. <laughs> and they'd done all their preparation, and I thought that was pretty wild. Amazing. Um, so Amazing. I streamed and helped populate that app. And at mm -hmm. some point, I will do some streaming, probably when I sign with uh, an online site. Okay, well, good luck. It'll be interesting to see with whom you'd sign. Um, what? Uh, also, one more question from Crystals. What is the one tournament that you still want to win that you have not won to date? The $50,000 Mayan Players Championship. Finishing second to Brian Rast, that one really hurt. Mm. And so, that's, you know, that's the top of my list. That, that uh, is the, the, yeah, the Poker Players Championship, yeah, for sure. Um, do you miss anything about poker from the pre-Moneymaker days, the pre-Moneymaker boom? I don't miss it. I mean, um, it was a great era, um, uh, but, you know, there weren't as many players in the tournaments. All the great guys, we we didn't travel together, but we'd all be in the same place at the same time, whether that was Atlantic City or London or um, or Vegas or L.A. Those were kind of the, you know, the main places we would, would be, of course, Vegas and L.A. And, you know, um, when I went into a room then, uh, it just seems like you knew 30 or 40 percent of the players. And uh, and that was nice. But the prize pools weren't as big. Mm -hmm. you know, um, I like this era more where, you know, where I can charge $50,000 a night for appearances, where <laughs> I can write New York Times bestselling books, where I can be live in front of the whole planet, whether it's on CNN with Anderson Cooper or on ESPN. Um, and so, you know, this is this is this is this is I'm loving this era. Fantastic. Uh, from uh, our user AcidBurnFX, thank you for submitting this question. What was the most memorable hand of your life? I think this could be an interesting story. 
I mean, I guess the standard answer was when I had two black nines against Johnny Chan. <laughs> uh, you know, um, I remember I'll tell that story quickly. I, the blinds were um, five and 10,000, and we were heads up. And um, I opened for 35,000, three and a half, three, you know, it's three and a half X. And Chan called the 35 and raised 130,000 more. And I was like, wow, what's going on? And, and I just thought, he's just changed styles. I mean, that's just a power race. So I folded the A7 of diamonds. I wasn't sure, but I didn't study long. I'm like, well, he probably has me beat. There's no future. I can't call. And I remember four hands later, I looked down at two black nines. And I made it third. It's almost the minute I saw the hand. I was like, all right, I'm going to make it. You know, So I opened again for 35000 and he went ahead and raised 130,000 more. And I could just, I just knew that I was moving in. I just, I knew when I made it 30, if he re-raised, it was going all in. Unless I saw something in his demeanor, which scared me. Like, you know, the signal that he had aces or kings or something, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, that would signal my mind based on a read. And so, um, you know, and so he made it 130 more and I just said, all in, instantly. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he had 650,000 in front of him, so he had to call off what? Well, he had 600,000 in front of him, so he already had 170 in there. So he called the last 430,000 with A7 of spades, and, you know, ESPN was there, and, uh, you know, and that's only half the story. You know, <laughs> the other half is that um, I asked, at that point, I had 100% of myself. No one had a piece and I asked, and I'd watched Johnny hit his cards, you know, in the four biggest tournaments in a row, the World Series in 87 and 88, and the Hall of Fame main event in mm -hmm. uh, 87 and 88. He'd gotten it in with ace, nine, ace 10 against ace jack, and he kept hitting his card. And so it was such a huge disparity, 750,000 for first and only 300 for second, that I had to make a decision for my financial life. And we mm. made a deal to save 150,200. First of all, I was two and a half to one favorite to win the hand. And I remember we went outside to talk and then Jack Binion came running over. The press is talking, what are you guys doing outside? And, and Johnny looked at Jack, I didn't know Jack. And he's like, oh, nothing, we're just making a save. And Jack's like, okay. <laughs> and we went back in and I looked over at Johnny and I said, it's a save on. And he said, uh, what do you, I said, he said, yes. I said, all right, the save is on, 150,000 to 100. So, in other words, I would get 450 uh, if, I, if I was second place. Right. And a 655 if I was first place. But until that second, if I, they just dealt the cards, I would have won the whole 755, which in the history of the main event, not many people have had 100% of themselves. Sure. And, uh, you know, and I just remember, you know, uh, there were a bunch of famous people in the stands, famous poker players. Uh, the stands weren't big, but there were some big names there. These people mm. just wanted to say they were there. Wow. And, uh, and uh, you know, when the flop came down, you know, king, king 10, and then uh, queen. And I remember th I was thinking to myself, man, I'm two and a half to one favorite, just like I was before the flop, but only one to go. And I was expecting him to get there. Now, he would have had 1.2 but I would have still had um, like 600,000. So I knew I still could win it. So I was like preparing for him to, 
to hit the card to not be stunned and not do something stupid because by then I'd already played heads up a couple times for tournaments and mm-hmm. you can't let one unlucky card, you know, you know, put you into shock. You can't be in the Masters tournament and you know make a triple on the second to last hole and then and then double the last hole because you're so shaken and it costs you the tournament. Of course. And when the six spades came off, my hands went shooting up into the air. Now you can go online right now at YouTube and you can see my hands shooting up in the air. It looks like I'm looking at the camera and the ceiling, but I'm looking up. After two swings, I turn around to look for my father. Wow. I stay out of view for three days. Wow. He's running up the aisle, and security stops him because we had, you know, the, all the money, all the cash was on the table. Sure. Like, no, no, let him through. I wave him through, and I gave my dad this amazing hug. You know, there he was, you know, best moment of my life to that point. And uh, supporting me, you know, a guy who hated the fact I was in poker, a guy who didn't want me to be in poker, saw me win the main event, and the hug he gave me, you know, was uh, just one of those lifetime great moments. So, yeah, that's the most memorable hand of my life. Fantastic. Amazing storytelling there. It's like 31 years ago and still just like it happened yesterday. It's great to hear you uh, describe that amazing hand. Uh, two more um, community members had some questions for you. We got two interesting questions from Bricks Joe, B-R-I-C-X-J-O. If you could tell your, your younger self, your younger self, one piece of advice at the beginning of your poker career, what would that be? Hello? I'm thinking. Oh, sorry. <laughs> oh that's amazing. I like that. Yeah, I, I don't know that I'd, I, I mean, I was going to, my first response and, and my response after 10 seconds is also to say, don't change a thing. But mm. I don't know. I mean, I just, I mean, I don't know what I would, I, I really think this run I've had is incredible. And, uh, you know, and some people would, you know, uh, if you look back at all the things I've done, some people might say improbable. Um, I don't know if I'd change anything, honestly. Wow. That's I was worried that we had lost the connection, but like I like I love that you put uh, the thought into that one. That's that's a fantastic answer. Um, and from also uh, from the same uh, cards chat community member, could you tell us about the your favorite charity that you support? Well, I would say I don't have a favorite. I would say that you can go to my website. I've raised almost sixty million bucks now for charities, um, for a lot of different charities. Uh, you know, um, uh, and so I, I would say that I don't necessarily have a favorite charity and, and leave it at that, but, okay. but it feels good having raised so much money for so many uh, charities. I mean, I, uh, there's 30 charities on that list and it feels good. Yeah. Great. And our final question is from Antonis32123. Uh, and of course, we call ourselves here at Cards Chat the friendliest poker podcast in town. So we're ending off with a question about friends. Which poker pros uh, do you consider to be best friends? Not uh, your home game buddies, but specifically poker pros. And is it that you appreciate their talent or their personality more that you want to be and, and consider yourself friendly with them? I guess my best poker playing friend is Mike the Mouth Mattisone. Now he's uh, he can be very um, 
I think he's super talented. Like he's much more talented than, than anybody understands. Like he can talk. I mean, he literally, he's on the phone with his best friend, Ben every day. And they talk poker four or five hours a day, every day. What about this hand? What about that? Hand? What about this hand? I mean, every day, because, you know, during uh, the COVID stuff, we've been playing poker every day. And so they just talk no limit hold them all the time. Mike is a little bit of a, you know, uh, he's a pain that you love, I guess, sometimes. I mean, it's sometimes a little much. Mike can be very um, self-centered uh, at times. And, uh, and you can't, you know, um, I can't sometimes go to him and say, hey, Mike, you did this wrong. Sometimes he'll start arguing with me, even if it's obvious. But there's a lot of uh, love there for Mike. And he has a tremendous amount of talent and heart and, uh, and, uh, so he's undoubtedly my best friend in poker. Um, I will say that, you know, my best friends in life, um, are not my best friends in poker, but Mike's definitely the guy. I, I feel, a, 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 um, a lot closer to Daniel Negreanu. Um, you know, he and I have been on again, off again. Well, not on again, up and down a little bit. Um, but, you know, uh, Daniel lives in his own world and I live in my own world. You know, in the old <laughs> days, we used to, in the, in the old days, we used to travel around a lot. We'd be, now, you don't see that much. And then imagine in the old days, Robbie, where we'd travel to the same places and it was all the same players. You would go to Atlantic City to play tournaments. There'd be 50, 60 players in every tournament. Uh, and then the main event would get two or 300 out of thin air, but it's the same 50 or 60 guys. I mean, I knew 30 of those guys. And so you'd have talks with them every day. I mean, you'd see friends on the road, we'd go out drinking together and, and then, you know, fast forward to, to now, now it's the world series of poker. I might see Mike, you know, uh, five minutes a day. Uh, maybe not that much. I mean, there's a lot of days I don't even see him. The World Series of Poker for people that don't know. It's four huge rooms. One of those rooms has 100 tables in it. So imagine a huge convention center and then imagine two more convention centers. Um, another table has 100. Another room has 100 tables and another has like 30 or 40 tables in it. You know it, Robbie, the listeners and viewers, the listeners don't know it, but literally, so I mean, you, so the, the closeness to people in the game, uh, the last five years is on a different level. Now, having said that, I've also invited Mike to Mike the Mouth to uh, be on a bunch of television stuff that I film, whether it's you know uh, Poker Central, uh, you know Poker Go stuff, which is great. Um, whether we're filming live at the bike, whether we're filming in other places, and then I've also sometimes I do a charity tournament in Washington D.C. I'll invite Mike. And then Mike was able, in turn, to, uh, then we, we went to a game, and uh, there were a lot of, Mike's a big Trump guy, and there were a lot of big Trump people there, and I'm in the middle. And, uh, but, you know, they, they had a, we were, they had a White House. They scheduled us to go to the Oval Office, and we were supposed to meet, uh, meet Donald Trump, who I've met before. Um, but again, I'm in the middle. So, but anyway... Um, so yeah, it's Mike. Love it. Great. 
stuff. And thank you very much to everyone who sent in questions for Phil Helmuth. And just a friendly reminder to everyone in our Cards Chat community, we'd love to see you submit your questions for future podcast guests in the dedicated thread on the forums. And of course, uh, thank you very much for taking part in today's show. And of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't say you've been incredibly generous with your time. Phil, thank you very, very much. And uh, of course, thank you to all of our listeners for, for tuning in uh, to another episode of the Cards Chat Podcast. I'm Robbie Straczynski, and you can follow me on Twitter at Card Player Life. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Cards Chat, the friendliest poker podcast in town from the world's number one poker community. <laughs>